This is You and Your Body with Katie Asari. Let's shed the stigma, move through the awkwardness, and get a bit uncomfortable together. Let's talk about our bodies. Thank you so much for listening. So I've been thinking a lot about this phenomenon um, that I'm sure is not solely my experience. And I thought, you know, maybe you guys have experienced this too. So, you know, I'll be like out and about in public with my husband, um, Quasi, who's like the fucking best. And um, I'll be like, you know, I don't know. I'll see a girl who I think is like really beautiful and I'll be like, oh, look, she's so pretty, right? And then I'll look at him and be like, oh, do you think she's attractive? I think it's just like, I think a lot of us are curious about whether our our partners find attractive, right? And it's like, I think I know the answer. And I don't actually think the question is coming from a place of insecurity. Although I think it's worth considering that it might be. Um, But I'm always just kind of curious. I'll be like, oh, do you think that she's attractive? And recently I did that about a person out in public who I thought was just like a knockout, you know, 11 out of 10. And he was just like, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, she's she's pretty. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, you don't think that, like, you know. And just to be clear, like, women and men objectify people, right? So I was like, you don't think she's got, like, a banging bod? Like, that girl looks like she, like, it's pretty great what she got going on over there. And he was just like, well, you know, just not really for me. And I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, it's just not really for me. And then I got to be honest, for, like, a really long time I've been thinking about it, like, probably a week after I was still thinking about it and I was like I don't understand how you couldn't think that like super thin woman was like incredible like I wish I was that thin you know she was like pretty thin but had a really nice butt and I was just like well what do you mean and so I went back to him like a week later and I was like hey I've been thinking about it a lot like what did you mean you didn't find that that girl attractive that we saw and he was like well I prefer a curvier woman And it was like, oh, my heart dropped because I had never even considered the possibility that someone would prefer somebody with my body type over this woman, right? Like it couldn't, I couldn't even fathom that there are people whose preference was a body like mine as opposed to maybe what a lot of the traditional beauty standards have taught us about what a woman should look like. And it just made me really sad for myself that I had never considered that a possibility. And so I think, uh, I think there's an invitation for there for us all to remember that no matter what your body is shaped like, everybody has different preferences and somebody's going to be into it. There's somebody for everybody. And I just don't think that I, um, yeah, I think I've got some more thinking to do about it, but I really want to try to to change my frame that only super thin bodies are attractive and try and try and find the beauty in all bodies, you know, because there really is beauty in all bodies. And to acknowledge that, like, a lot of us have preferences, especially in terms of what we find sexually attractive and that they don't always follow what society tells us we should find attractive. And that's pretty great, right? I think so.
Um, well, welcome to You and Your Body, Elle. I'm really excited to have you here today. Uh, I like how I say it like it's a talk show, like we're sitting and I'm Ellen DeGeneres. You did not have to dance your way in, so that's good. Um, <laughs> and I usually start just by talking a little bit about you and how I met you and kind of like, and then you can add, obviously, because you know you better than anybody. But um, Elle is a friend of mine, I'm lucky to get to say. Uh, and I know, this is what I know about you. It's always, my favorite too is whenever I do it with people who I know, but I don't necessarily like know your full life story, you know? So, um, I know that Elle is a mental health therapist in the Seattle area. Um, I know that you're really passionate about that work and that's really important to you. Um, and then I know a lot of stuff about you, like that you like to be outside and you love to do outdoor stuff, biking. We both love yoga. I know that you're a yoga instructor too. So there's some elements of like how the mind and body and soul are all connected are really important to you and part of your mental health therapy practice. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's a huge passion of mine and will definitely kind of come up in our conversation too, of course, that like connection and disconnection and like reclaiming process. Well, I'm already intrigued. Uh, what, made, <laughs> what made you say yes to the email, you know? So like in my email, I basically was like, I just want to do a podcast about how people relate to their bodies. I think it's really interesting. And so what about that kind of to you resonated or made you interested? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think one of the first questions you posed is sort of like, yeah, optional questions to kind of get mm -hmm. the conversation going um was like how what were some of our first like memories of our bodies or yeah. experiences of of ourselves in that way and that that question has been a really big source of like personal awareness and growth um and understanding myself and ultimately mm -hmm. a more compassionate way that has sort of less shame associated with it um yeah so that was definitely the question that like hooked me which I think is so fascinating because that was a question that I in talking to people a lot of people were like I don't know how to answer that question that's a weird one you know it's just interesting what resonates for people and what doesn't um I think that I came to that question or that kind of pondering in some like odd ways that I just like here's an example recently uh I was looking at some like yoga breathwork stuff and they were talking about this type of breath that you do which I don't remember the name or I can't even describe it fully but basically when your stomach is really empty you try to inhale and then continue to do false inhales until your like organs get sucked upwards so that you're like really really narrow around the waist area um and I was watching these videos about it and I had this sudden flashback memory of doing that as a child that I used to lie in my bed and do that every morning because I thought it was cool. And I, you know, like I didn't have this like weird stigma about my belly or shame around it. So I just thought it was fascinating. I was like, whoa, I can make it really big and then I can make it really tiny. And just the ways that I was thinking about how much we put stigma on body parts, I guess. And that, like, yeah, it helped me realize that, like, probably I had a very different relationship with my stomach and belly area when I was four or five 
than I do now, that's for sure. Absolutely. And like how we can hold tension in our bodies and that there really isn't there we're all we're we're all so connected our experiences growing up our development the messages that the messages that we receive the stress that accumulates in our systems or like the openness and resilience that we experience mentally and emotionally all of that is held and discovering that over the course of time has been both painful and also just freeing of like, oh, there's actually a way through this. There's something that I can do to take control of this situation and make myself feel better, which is just so empowering. What are some of the tools that you've used either personally or with clients to help people kind of start that journey? Like I know I at one point would hear people talk like this and be like, where do you even start? Like I'm I feel so out of touch with my body or so disconnected from my emotions that sometimes I think we don't know where to begin or what Mm -hmm. that opening stage looks like. Yeah. I mean, I usually start with clients um, from a place of like exploring breath in terms of like how long or not like not how long, but also like how much time can you spend exploring your breath and like a really unrushed process? So not necessarily trying to change anything, but like drawing your awareness to the inhale and exhale, how it is, and then noticing how much time you can spend there breathing mm-hmm. without any rush and without any place to go. And that is usually a cool gateway because so many people that I see are very anxious mm-hmm. and always rushing, rushing, rushing. And to just sort of have that experience of, oh, I can slow down my perception of reality by slowing down my breath and tuning my awareness inwards. And that is tends to be a pretty big shift for people. I remember I got to, luckily I got to teach a yoga class with some of my students. I don't like want to force yoga upon them, but usually they ask me to when they find out I'm a yoga teacher. You know, like usually about mid-year by the time we've developed some relationship and rapport. I mean, it's like a bold opening move. So I usually wait a little bit, but I remember I said some, I was just having them close their eyes and I make them on Wednesdays do meditation moments with me. I call it mindful moments, but it's basically two minutes of silence. I just try and instruct them to notice their breath. And I said something about relaxing your belly and I heard this kid in the back go, whoa. Like, yes. <laughs> and afterwards, I was like, Fernando, like, what What was going on? He's like, I didn't know my belly wasn't relaxed. But then when you said it, it did change, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that I love that. And also figure, I, I remember it was such an interesting moment for me when I realized that I had some of that reverse breathing pattern where mm. I was sucking and my belly was going in when I breathed in and then it went out when I was exhaling. And I remember like one of my first yoga classes where they were talking about belly breathing, but it was later on because in sort of some of my first experiences with yoga, it was a lot of like tightening through the core constantly and there wasn't any direction to to soften the belly but when I learned about like yeah, softening the belly and diaphragmatic breathing and how kind of typically the belly goes out when you breathe in and in when yeah. you exhale 
And I realized that people with that reverse breathing pattern tend to be trauma survivors or have or have experienced some trauma in their lives. And it was so it was just such a clear moment of like, oh, this is very much in my body. And there's a reason why I feel differently than a lot of other people that I'm coming into contact with and why when I am in a room of yoga students, it's very different now, like 10 years later. But when I first started practicing yoga and at the beginning when they're saying like everyone, you know, close your eyes, at least there there's more kind of choice language with that now, but yeah. in some in some contexts. But at that point, I remember just looking around and being like, how is everyone feeling okay having their eyes closed right now? I was so hypervigilant and like super and, and didn't really know, know that. And I couldn't really see my experience um, until, until that moment of like, oh, this is really different. Oh my gosh. I have so many questions. So like, <laughs> I was just sitting there as you were talking and a realizing that I definitely, I had some reverse breathing patterns before I did yoga too. And I don't think that I'd ever thought about that. I, but I do remember the moment where I was like, Oh, I think I do it backwards in my daily life. And then just now I did it to kind of see how that feels. Cause I've, you know, been practicing for five years now. And so I just, that's kind of not how I breathe anymore. And it is a little anxiety producing just to take a few breaths like that. <laughs> Yes, it's super because that's how you breathe when you are having a panic attack. If you want to oh. hyperventilate, breathe like that. If you breathe like that for long enough, you'll probably give yourself a panic attack. It's very restrictive. Yeah, and so it's like this negative feedback loop. Absolutely. And I just had never identified that before. That's really interesting. Wow. Because, I mean, it did three breaths like that, and I was like, oh, I feel very, like, keyed up and, like, uncomfortable yeah. And like, yeah, it feels trapped kind of to breathe like that to me. Definitely trapped is a very good way of describing it. Yeah. And I had no idea that that is linked to trauma, that that link is linked to the experience of trauma for a lot of people. Yeah. Because when we're scared, like if you're shocked and you go like, <gasps> like when you oh. go, <gasps> yeah, you're breathing in and your belly's coming in. And so if you're kind of habituated to that mm. it becomes your breath cycle and yeah it's and and I think and that definitely links to so much of yeah what um I was sort of yeah per, like kind of preparing in my mind to bring to our time together in terms of like especially childhood sexuality and like discovering yourself and how that happens and how if there's like force or coercion or pain um, during that process and for so many of us there is force pain or coercion at some point in our developmental process with our sexuality or our sensuality mm -hmm. and that really our sexuality and sensuality is so linked to I think every it, it really can't be separated from everything else because it's such a core aspect of how we relate to joy and pleasure in our worlds and curiosity and shame and exploration and connection and intimacy um, and definitely all like in the belly and in the pelvis 
um, I was I just read a book and there's the Netflix series now on um, that's called Unorthodox. I don't know if you've heard of yeah. it about and in the book it goes into it more specifically, but a lot of women who come from repressive religious backgrounds have this condition called vaginismus, mm-hmm. which is literally like um, yeah, like a narrowing of the vagina that makes sex really, really painful. Um, and so, and that is, I mean, that's, that's psychosomatic. That's like, it's, it's not just psychosomatic. It's an actual medical, like it's very real. It's mind, body connection, heart, soul, it's everything. And so, yeah, it's, it's, I'm really looking, I'm, I'm really glad I'm like, and that was definitely kind of the pull of talking to you because this is just so, it's been so core and central to my life. And yet I rare, I mean, I really rarely talk about it. It's really mm-hmm. sensitive. It's um, something that like I keep, it's, I, I kind of protect And I know that from who I have shared it with, so many people have had experiences like my experience um, and, and it's okay to have these experiences and there are ways through it. Well, and we definitely, I think that I'm so glad a, that you're willing to go there and share things that are really hard. Cause I know that's not easy. And partially that's absolutely what my vision is for this podcast is like, there are these things that I wish that someone had been willing to talk about and that I didn't have to go through them in such a painful way and feel so alone right? Like so many of us have felt so alone in our struggles with our bodies, whatever that aspect looks like for people. And I just, I want to try and get rid of some of the shame and stigma that like, we're all experiencing these things. Like I came from quite a conservative religious background and I definitely had some, like, I had a really hard time with my body and had a really hard time. I was very uncomfortable exploring it. I like, and for some reason it was even beyond my parents. Like I was more religious than my parents, I would say, more dogmatic, more conservative. And and something inside of me, I don't know what it was, but I just had a really hard time with like nudity. I mean, anything like that, I like could not handle. And it made it really challenging to move into a place of learning to love my body whenever. And I don't, it, I mean, I would, I don't know why, but I took to the religious offerings that I was giving maybe a little more extremely than my family had anticipated. And it made it, hard and I'm sure we're I'm not the only one who's been through that definitely not yeah definitely <laughs> yeah comfort within our own skin and self-love I mean it's hard to mm-hmm. it's hard to have self-love when there are parts of your body that you want to hide away and yeah cover up yeah well, I just didn't even know like the basic anatomy stuff because I was so yeah. like, I like didn't think women could masturbate until I was like 20 in my early 20s before I realized that women could masturbate. I just thought that that was like something only men's anatomy allowed. I just had no I like I just never there was never a conversation in my upbringing about pleasure and sexuality. There was a lot about controlling sexuality and there's a lot about disease or fear you know but I there was definitely never a pleasure-based conversation so I just had no idea that that was even available to me and I was too scared of my own body to figure it out yeah and and especially I think we can so internalize 
those messages. Like if we're just as similar, if you grow up in an environment um, like a lot of boys are, and, and I mean girls too, of like, don't cry, don't show emotion, don't get too angry, don't X, Y, and Z, then we can internalize that message of like, there's something wrong with me for having these feelings. And, and then we can kind of turn those feelings against ourselves. And that's, instead of really letting them be resolved and letting them express themselves and then that stuff gets really stuck in our systems and just like when we're told or when we're not told or just no messages or or like you know don't masturbate or um or just no conversation of that we can internalize the message that yeah like there's something wrong with me for having curiosity there or for experiencing pleasure that way and it's such a huge source of pleasure. And so when there's like something wrong with experiencing immense pleasure, like that's a really weird disconnect and it's super confusing. And I think as a society, we have a lot of like, yeah, societal and intergenerational like trauma around that and some serious work to do. Absolutely. I remember a friend who had, who grew up very similarly to me saying one time, like, I was supposed to be chaste and virgin and not sexual at all. And then I got married and I'm expected to suddenly please my husband and be sexual and be pleasurable. And she was like, I just don't know how to do them both. Like I was trained to not, and now I'm supposed to, and it feels like a double standard. Like I can't ever do it right. (laughs) Like I, how am I supposed to flip this switch? Like you wanted me to be, you know, anti-sexual basically. And now you want me to be super sexual with my husband and I don't know how to do that. Mm-hmm. And that it's supposed to be easy and that we shouldn't talk about it too much. And <laughs> I remember like in um, my master's program, we had a sex therapy class and it was just, we were actually in every class we were, we were assigned, like one person was supposed to bring in porn oh. and we all watched it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> it wasn't totally required, but um, a lot of people did. And it was really fascinating, like what sorts of messages we get about sex. Like what is sex? That sex is like penis and vagina intercourse, yeah. that you're not really supposed to talk about it. That like, that when does it start? When does it end? Um, like all of these weird unwritten rules that uh, are just like, just go unquestioned for so many of us so what would you say like in a relationship what are some things that we should be talking about in terms of our sexualities or what sex we want to be having I mean I think really basically I mean I think a lot of it is understanding and developing your own relationship with yourself and your sexuality like deciphering what feels good and what doesn't feel good I mean I think one of the ways to sort of like measure or not measure because that's I think too black and white but to like feel into your own sense of um, like intimacy with yourself is do you have a connection to your impulse and your desire Mm -hmm. and are you kind of allowing those wants and desires to be there and to kind of negotiate and to 
um, kind of create a dialogue with your partner where you can create consent around what you like and what you don't like and um, to create that like reciprocity and mutuality and to be assertive and say say yes as emphatically as as you can say no and um, and vice versa and and like making it a conversation instead of assumptions and like oh I, I might just try this until I get a no and instead yeah kind of and engaging that like curiosity and I don't know if you've heard of polyvagal theory but there's like the mm-hmm. idea that there's this there's the vagus nerve and we have the safe and social part of our nervous system where we're connected to our executive functioning and all of our system is kind of um, wiring and firing together and we have a sense of um, safety and uh, compassion and empathy. It's a place of a lot of connection. And a lot of us are oftentimes in more of the triggered states of Mm. um, not feeling social, not feeling engaged, feeling disconnected from ourselves or other people. And so, I mean, really focusing on like how can – sex be safe for both people and and safe and where curiosity can exist and where compassion can exist and that's huge and playfulness and yeah and and openness and understanding what's hurt in the past and allowing those feelings to exist and kind of work their selves out and I know that my my experiences with um, childhood sexual trauma have really like and how I talk to my partners and it's become sort of like an asset an assessment tool that's a very like mental health therapist thing to say but for my like how is my partner going to respond to this like and to different feelings that come up in sex sometimes there are tears sometimes there's fear sometimes there's like ecstasy there's all there can and and sometimes there's kind of numbness like there's there's a lot of different things that we can experience and to kind of yeah create a relationship where all of that can be okay absolutely when I feel like I know one of the things that I think hurt me early on in my sexual relationship um was the assumption that the male identifying person in the relationship was supposed to want sex more than I was and that there was something and then that became in my mind there's something wrong with me if the other person doesn't want me not necessarily even that like I don't well there's yeah I definitely developed some negative feelings about my own sexuality and the like intensity of my sexual desires but then I think I also developed this like assumption that it was my fault like if my partner didn't want to have sex with me 24 7 then there was clearly something wrong with me. I think that that's like, if you, even if you look at like stupid sitcom shows, like that's what they're teaching us. Like I, all those shows, like everybody loves Raymond or, you know, those like typical wife, husband sitcoms. It's always this like fumbling man who wants sex all the time. I just think that, I think I didn't realize until like probably the last four or five years that I wasn't the only woman who felt this way or that that wasn't, necessarily the dynamic in every person's intimate relationships Mm -hmm. yeah definitely very complicated I mean I know when I was like so many things there like when I was growing up 
Um, I grew up in a household where both my parents um, are were medical doctors, and they worked a lot, and we were kind of in childcare a lot, and we had a lot of like financial privilege, but there wasn't a lot of like emotional presence, like physical um, affection was like wasn't really very present, and I didn't you know, through understanding mental health and being a mental health therapist, um, I didn't have a secure attachment. Like that was not my experience. I didn't have like a lot of that, like skin to skin contact. And I didn't get that experience of being emotionally regulated. And so as a kid, I didn't really understand. I didn't understand boundaries and I didn't understand, yeah, how to calm myself down. And I think that that's, that kind of led to um, there's like everything occurs within a context. And, um, and when I was a kid, that was kind of, I, I really like craved touch and I really mm. wanted like validation and I wanted, and I would kind of, I was very sweet and I've had to work on a lot of like codependent kind of uh, behaviors in my adult life. But as a kid, I, yeah, I was super, I just wanted to please and that definitely changed like in adolescence a little bit. But um, yeah, I wanted to please. It was really hard to like say no or to assert myself. I just wanted to be helpful and I really like wanted to be loved. And so, and I think that, yeah, it contributed because I would be like, what ended up happening was I would, I, there was not a lot of supervision growing up in my neighborhood and we like lived in a pretty like safe um, on a pretty safe street and I would go over to um, a neighbor's house a few doors down and she like really yeah kind of interesting home environment she was adopted um, from South America and the family that she was adopted into her parents, they had a lot of mental health issues, a lot of alcoholism and bipolar disorder and domestic violence between her parents. And I would spend a lot of time over there. And it was, mm. it was, and, and her and I had this dynamic within our friendship where she, I, she, I think experienced a lot of that trauma. And I, she, I think she was exposed to a lot. And I think she might've she might have been sexually abused or maybe just um, exposed to sexual like material that was beyond her uh, age level that was inappropriate. But we would kind of, um, when we were hanging out together, and I was like, I was really young. I was like five, five, six, even like, yeah, like right around five and six. Was she the same age? She was like, a year, two years older than me. So really okay. similar age. Um, but she was very uh, forceful. Like she was very, she was a very strong-willed child. And she had, like, there's this picture that um, that is floating around in like a family album that I think well depicts like our dynamic where – the, the picture is she is holding a leash and I think she had a dog and like the collar is around my neck and I'm like on all fours and like sure kids play games like I totally get yeah. it but like that was 
that was that was like how we played like it was you know what she wanted to do and I was like just along for the ride and so sometimes we would like draw pictures on each other's backs and and that felt good like I loved I loved touch like I said I like really didn't get a lot and so um at some point like she would kind of touch lower and I I, it's so interesting talking about this because part of me wants to talk about it from like my mental health therapist place and then another one and, and then but I also want to like nurture my experience of what it was like for me as a kid and so anyway she would like yeah kind of like go lower and I remember there would be sort of a point where I would just sort of freeze like like I didn't know what was going on and and then she would like and it and she 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 knew more about my anatomy and my body than I did I had at that point I had no idea I I knew that like you pee and you poop and you wipe and like I had no idea about like how many holes there were down there I just had no idea but she knew and she touched me and like it and it hurt and it was painful and really confusing and but I liked the other touch so like it was a really weird weird process and and then and and that and and then like I didn't tell anyone about that and because it had happened like countless times it happened a lot between like when I yeah when I was like five and six and I'd never told anyone about it I would get like I would get like weird what's really common with kids who experience like sexual traumas kids will get like um yeast infections or just like weird stuff and so I definitely like would have things like that Mm. and I didn't really talk about it until in when I was getting my master's and I we took, we had a class in, um, like sexual trauma and I'd never really considered it. I I had, I was so confused about what happened because I was like, well, what actually made it more confusing was that in middle school, like we kind of disconnected for a little while. Mm-hmm. And then later on in middle school, we like hung out again and I was more like, awake to my own sense of like pleasure and we actually had like more of a like a consensual sexual like sexual experience it wasn't bi-directional like she was but and then I kind of like thought that I'm I might be a lesbian which was really confusing at the time and there was like a lot of people who and, and like homophobia and and so it was just so disorienting and so then I was like well then that previous experience wasn't really harmful because then like I ended up kind of consenting to it and that's also really common in people who experience um sexual trauma even when there's kind of a more like obvious power differential between um between the two people and so yeah it's and I wanted to share that piece too because like it's just this 
like this question, you know, how you find out about your body and, and like my, there's this like defense of innocence. I think that's what it's called. And Mm. I think it's a, it's like an organization and they talk a lot about like, um, childhood sexual abuse and prevention. And there's actually a word for what I've just described and it's called Mm. child on child sexual abuse. And now I'm a mental health professional and I work in foster care a lot and I see that and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like, this is, this happens to a lot of people. It's really, um, and it, and the impacts are, I mean, it, it, it's that, yeah, loss of, um, autonomy and like loss of ability to really like own your experience and, (sighs) no I think you know I think if anything I've come to realize that like I think a lot of people have experienced abuse in some way that they never identified as abuse until much much later like I even remember it's happened to me I've had a dear friend who was describing a situation to me and I kind of had to lovingly say like I just I want you to feel empowered to know that I, I would define that as abuse like that I would define that as sexual assault. So it just might be worth considering. Like, I think a lot of us grew up and I hope that this is changing. And I think that it is in some ways, the conversation, but I think that a lot of things that we used to just identify as early sexual behavior, we've now become to identify as really unhealthy. Like, you know, there was definitely a situation where I was very, um, very young. I mean, I was young for my development, right? I was, you know, 19 or 20, but I had had no sexual experience. So I was very inexperienced. And, and I said that I wanted to stop. And the person took that to mean as I'm going to masturbate in front of you. And then I said, please, I want to stop. And then tried to put their penis in my mouth. And then I said, please, I want to stop, you know, and having to reassert that over and over and over again. I, I mean, I told a few people at the time, and we all just thought it was a joke that they were just too drunk and that they wouldn't like it was made into a joke. Because I think at the time I didn't identify, like I wouldn't have described that as sexual assault and I didn't realize it until much later, you know, around the Me Too movement in the last few years. I was like, wait a second, <laughs> like something like that's happened mm. to me. And then looking back, I absolutely see how that affected my ability to feel safe with future people. That like, that was already a big leap for me to try and engage somewhat sexually with someone and then to have it go so, to have my consent not heard again and again, definitely just made me really scared and decide not to. I was just like, I was the queen of the make out and run for many years. Cause I was like, I just like, I wanted, I, you know, I wanted some experience. I wanted some sensation or touch or, you know, validation. And, but I didn't ever feel safe to explore my sexuality or on my own even. Right. Like, it made me just uncomfortable mm. with the whole thing. I was like, maybe this just isn't for me. Like, Absolutely. Absolutely. Because when that, yeah, because when the association with like sexual interaction and contact is one that's laced with um, like lack of reciprocity and coercion and pain, like it's, yeah, that's, it's damaging. It's, yeah, there's like a, it's, there's a brokenness there. Where especially because it can be such a source of um, intimacy and connection and pleasure and yeah yeah it's really in that in that like lack of ability to be 
assertive and really fully present because if you have to be vigilant around sexuality and even yeah I mean when you have to be vigilant in that way you're you're tightening in your body and when you're tightening in your body you're not physically opening to the experience that's there and so I know that for me like a lot of my then in high school I had sex with like so many people I had sex I had sex with more people between like the ages of 15 and 18 than I have between the ages of like 20 and 30 like it's I really was and it wasn't connected at all it was just kind of like I just want it, it was a very disconnected and 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 how I think one of the main things of main things about like trauma that's been really interesting to me is that how a lot of trauma victims and and I a lot of this language I think can be kind of problematic sometimes but for this for the sake of simplicity with this like a lot of people who have experienced trauma we can like reenact that within our systems and so Mm -hmm. we can put ourselves into positions that are that aren't safe and we can like replicate those experiences for ourselves because to some extent we can like internalize that um, that that's like what's what's normal or we can kind of develop a comfort within that or just an attachment to that or or all it's a very complex or we want to kind of or or I I have felt within myself like I think subconsciously trying to like have a different experience of that, that I'm in where I'm in more control of it. So Mm. by choosing to opt into that experience. So I've definitely had to, I mean, and and in a combination, I mean, all of this stuff is just such a system. Like, I mean, I had that experience and, and like I mentioned, like the kind of lack of secure attachment. And then I also had, like, I was in a really horrible car accident when I was young my parents separated I had like grief and loss and substance abuse and and like yeah intimate partner stuff and so this is it's this just like complex web of kind of how we engage in and connect with ourselves so and and really like and why and I think loops back to like especially with this child on child stuff and my decision to not I mean a lot of this information that I'm sharing is like anyone who knows me and who would listen to this obviously it's very obvious who I am and I've and that's totally fine um, but like I remember when I told my sister because we don't exist in a vacuum and like when I told my sister about this for example she instantly understood. Like I, I took that class in, in graduate school and kind of had this awakening of like, oh my gosh, I'm, I experienced this and like this was really harmful and painful and I don't have to hide from this. And I kind of like overshared, I think. I mean, it was, I think the right thing at the time, but I it, like, I just, I felt like I really needed to like, tell people about it because I felt like it kind of explained like some of my self-destructive it it kind of explained some of like my neurotic behaviors away 
or something mm-hmm. or like contextualize them. And I remember, I mean, my sister, I could just sort of like see this like vision of our childhood, like it, it wore, it just shifted, like her perception of our childhood. And like, in this situation, this neighbor girl, like, I know that I would never, like, she's a victim in this too. Like she, yeah. it's not this like, and it, I, I don't think it ever really is this like clear, you know, victim perpetrator kind of thing. Like, I don't, and I don't want to like, put or like warp or shift other people's like perception of of our upbringing or I don't know it's kind of complicated that way but sharing some of this stuff is it's not so easy I agree and like to be honest I kind of mentally prepared that I do think doing this podcast is going to push a little bit on what I'm comfortable sharing about myself you know And I mean, I think part of the beauty is that we get to decide what we share. Like we can record this together and then go through it together and decide what we feel safe and not safe letting out into the world. Because it does feel like it's a big one. And I I specifically worry a little bit about talking much about my upbringing. You know what I mean? The last thing I would ever want is to hurt my mother, especially, or my father. But I just, I never want my parents to think that they did something wrong. I think my parents did the best that they could. And I frankly think they're pretty great parents, you know, like nobody's a perfect parent, but I, I do, I have the same concern sometimes about like, how do I be authentic and bring this conversation out into the light, out of the shadows? Cause I want to, but also, you know, I do worry is there will be the collateral damage <laughs> that other people will get hurt that I didn't intend to. So just know I have yeah. the same concerns. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely a hard balance to strike and I think yeah like how to kind of there's an like culturally and society societally this like call out culture and versus like kind of a more and I think it's such an important part of any uh developmental process like being in that black and white place of I'm the victim you're the perpetrator I was hurt by this thing that you did to me and that's a that is a an an important place to be in for a period of time, and some people need to stay there, and that's just kind of you know what they have to go through. And oftentimes, in my own personal work and with clients, we are working towards shift, like spending enough time in that place so that that place can feel really heard and expressed, and that that like anger and frustration can like release itself. And honoring that and that fight within that and then also um, growing up a little bit from that place uh, and and developing a more complex understanding of the world and kind of holding the ambiguity and holding the, the multiplicity and 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 being and doing that compassionately and it and like all the parts can coexist and we can kind of slide back and slide forward into different places and different feelings and um and I know that I was definitely like very angry for a long time about various things and felt very much the victim of my environment and of my context and I think I was pretty hard to be around in those places because it was hard for me to take accountability and hard for me to like 
feel better. And, um, and it was, yeah, it was really painful. And I'm really, and it, that, that's one of the reasons why I feel it was a pretty clear yes to talk about this now. Mm -hmm. Um, because I feel like I can kind of hold that, like the nuances of that a little bit better and still talking about this, like, I feel like hot in my face and I feel like shaky in my body. Like it's, it's very much alive and I can't, there's only a certain amount that I can like regulate through that, but I feel like I've gained more trust within myself. I totally feel that. I know the first few times I talked about what happened to me, I definitely had a very body-based reaction. It was like, oh, my body remembers like, even though my mind didn't think that this was traumatic, like, my body felt that this was traumatic, you know? And I even looked at it, like, the next relationship that was actually a relationship, and I tried to have a sexual connection with someone. I was so scared the whole time. I mean, it only happened one time. And I remember I kept verbally saying, but you're not going to try and have sex with me, right? But, like, you're not going to put your penis inside of me, right? Like, over and over again, because I was so scared of not being respected. I just it was so hard for me to trust that when I said what I wanted, that that would be heard and that I wouldn't have to fight. You know, it was almost like I was so I was preparing to fight. Like I was preparing to have to fight to be heard or to be respected, even though like that partner was not trying to at all do anything disrespectful or not listening to me, but I just couldn't. And I think it's so fascinating that even then I didn't see that 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 was the result of something else. I was just like, Oh yeah, that's just how you are. It's fine. Like, just keep going. It's like, you know, I, even then I would not have said that I had any sexual trauma. Like, if you asked me, I would have said no, I don't. And I honestly think a lot about, not that I like, it's, it's like you're saying that really torn feeling. Because I think a lot about the other party to the event that happened. And like, I wonder what, how he views the event. You know, like, he did apologize the next day. So I think he knew that, that lines had been crossed because there was an apology, which I appreciated. Um, but I often think like, I wonder if that thing that I would label as at least sexual trauma, I wonder how he would label that or if he even realizes that it had an effect on my life moving forward, you know, and not that I need him to feel bad or that I need him to like take responsibility. You know what I mean? I just wonder, I think it's interesting to think about like, you know, are there things that we have done that create trauma for somebody else that I have no idea or that I don't remember that way, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And our, our memories are really inaccurate, like that's a fact and we can frame things. And like what I was saying about, yeah, one of the things that can happen with trauma is that when there's like a clear sense of being a victim of something, um, there can be like a tendency to just see your, yeah, like see yourself as the victim of that and then paint your experience. And also retrospectively, there's, I forget exactly what it's called, but it's, it's where you, it's kind of a mental health term, but it's the mm-hmm. idea of like, um, retrospectively telling your life narrative mm-hmm. from like a trauma lens yeah. Instead of one that's more like, and so trauma, it doesn't just, it's not, it, it's not just that moment or that experience. Mm-hmm. It can systemically impact the way that you view your past, the way that you project into the future, 
and one and and it's so great to have an awareness of that like oh am i engaging in that process or is there a different way of of experiencing this and how they've connected it too to like child um to attachment and early mm-hmm. early um child experiences and how much you are able to self regulate because if you experience something traumatic and difficult if you have your nervous system in a really resilient place from from your connection to your caregiver, you're going to be more resilient. Like it's mm-hmm. it's probably not going to impact you as much. And so Can you yes, give us a little like attachment connected. theory 101. Yeah, totally. So I've heard of I it, mean, but I don't fully understand it. And I just want to make mm-hmm. sure I'm fully getting what you're saying. Cause I've, I had a therapist like casually bring it up and then I didn't end up working with that therapist. So it wasn't a topic that we explored. Um, so I just don't know very much about it. Yeah, totally. So, um, very simply, like, I mean, when you're a baby, um, you don't have a sense of self. You don't have an identity. You don't have a sense of like, I am who I am. Your identity is entwined to entwined with your caregiver. And so if you have a caregiver, who is available and calm enough and supported enough in their context um, to be there and to be not only self, not only to be regulated within themselves, being able to kind of calm themselves down when things get tough, but be able to really attune to a baby's needs. To attune to a baby takes a lot. It takes, oh, a lot of curiosity. It takes a lot of executive functioning, um, a lot of connectedness. It's really, and it, oh, you're crying. That cry means that your diaper needs to change. That cry means that you're tired. That look means you're uncomfortable. Oh, you have a diaper rash. I'm going to meet your need. So that level of attunement um, when a care take when a caregiver is able to give that attunement, that skin to skin contact, the baby gets the sense of um, I have a need; it will be met. Mm. L- this environment is safe. It's safe to explore. It's safe to have feelings. It's safe to have needs, and we I we form a sense of self and identity around that, around our needs, around our, our bowel movements, our, our connection to food and to life and to people. If we have a caregiver who's um, very distracted, and, and I'm going to say that a lot of people, a lot of society is not set up to meet the needs of caregivers and children. So yeah. in attachment theory, there can be a lot of kind of like mother shaming because mm-hmm biologically a lot of this falls on moms because they're the ones that give birth and can breastfeed um and then societally and how we've organized things of course the patriarchy uh there's a lot of impacts with that right so when always the patriarchy and so when your caregiver is anxious Mm -hmm. is not able to meet is not able to meet their own needs because of lack of resources or whatever um or historical intergenerational trauma they're probably or depressed and and it's hard enough to kind of take care of yourself, then it's going to be really hard to attune to your baby. 
And mm-hmm. that baby will probably, it, it will pick up on that energy, will pick up on a, a energy of depression or of anxiety and, and we'll take that on where mm-hmm. we're, you know, we're these like very inter, we're very connected at that point in our life. And so when people talk about attachment, we're really talking about that first year of life where our nervous system, a lot of that is really laid out and we go and then we grow and we relate a lot of our lens through which we see the world is, is this environment safe? Is it safe to explore and to experience joy? And am I going to get a lot of that um, eye to eye connection and human intimacy? And, and am I adored? You know, like Mm -hmm. some, some kids really get that experience of like, being adored and really their parents enjoying them. And then there's a spectrum that goes all the way to kids who are really unseen and really neglected by their caretakers. And so, yeah, that spectrum, it it lives within our, our bodies within, and then how our, how we formulate our thoughts and belief systems and our feelings and our behaviors. It's all very linked. So, so yeah, the connection that to, resilience and trauma they've connected like PTSD symptoms and people who uh, like combat veterans who develop PTSD symptoms um, they're more likely to have uh, insecure or yeah lack of secure attachment during their first year of life I have I'm so fascinated I think because so not that we have to give me a personal therapy session here, but so <laughs> my first year of life is pretty interesting. And obviously I, I believe that I'm correct in saying this, but my, so my mom and dad um, definitely adored me. And to this day, I tease them that like, they think that my childhood was perfect and I can do no wrong. Like they definitely love me in an unconditional way that that's really special. And then I'm aware that like, not everybody receives that kind of, upbringing you know um but my mom also really suffered from postpartum depression pretty severely um and she actually checked herself into an in 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 facility or you know what I mean thank you inpatient treatment center um when I was very young and I went and stayed with my aunt um I think she was only there for a pretty short period um I don't know the exact like you know I think it was like less than a month um and I've always really admired her bravery, like in 1988, in the late 80s for saying like, I'm not what my daughter, like, I want to be better for my daughter. Because I think she knew that that was, that she was thinking about harming herself and that that wasn't going to be what was best for me. Um, and so she did that for me. But I do, I just was really interesting to think about how that could relate to the way that I attached to things, you know, because she was gone for a period but my dad was also much more involved than the average father. Like I remember every day when my dad got home from work, my, he would take me for like an hour or two to go do stuff so that my mom could get a break and he would hang out with me and take me to the park and you know, whatever. So I just, I wonder if somehow they were able to overcome some of the challenge of my mom being gone in depression. Just interesting. Yeah. Thing. Absolutely. Cause, and, and cause there's no perfect and things are, you know, things happen and, and, and a lot of people think that like, oh, just because a kid can't remember it or a child's an infant, um, 
or like under the age of four that just because you can't, you don't have an actual memory of it, that it doesn't impact you. And like, we know that that's just absolutely not the case. Um, and, and it, and just because something impacts us, there's also kind of like, we can get into this black and white thinking of trauma equals bad and like and that's not and and that's not true I mean thing negative like adverse experiences I think can open us up and um can really like create more porousness in our system for more connection to spirituality and empathy and really understanding hardship and and I know that as a therapist my experiences have made it a lot easier to like connect with other people and to hold space for the experiences of other people. Um, And like, that is who I am and I wouldn't change that for the world. And also I had a lot of, I went to private school. I, when I fell through the cracks, the cracks weren't very deep and Mm. there was a lot of support there and that's very, very different than if I had had sort of similar experiences and less privilege and less resources. Those cracks can get a lot deeper and and it's a huge, you know, there's like, there's definitely a social equity issue. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's complex. It absolutely is. And thanks for explaining attachment theory because I've heard of it before, but I did not fully understand it. Um. And I know it's just, it's one piece of a lot of different therapeutic models, you know, the way people look at things. Because I definitely think that in the long term, my mom's depression did have some effects on me, obviously, as a child. Um, But I definitely have discussed it um, with lots of people in my life that, like, I see the positive effects that my parents adoring me had. You know what I mean? Like, I can see that I have a a resilience, I think is a good word to put it, that I think comes from knowing that my parents would always love me. And like, we didn't have a lot of money. We went bankrupt when I was in middle school, like financial instability and my mom's mental health were at times really big struggles, but I know how lucky I am to have felt loved and to felt unconditional love, I think is, is a big game changer in my ability to, to be resilient when things get hard. Absolutely. And it becomes this like kind of positive feedback loop too, because with attachment, one of the things that attachment theory extrapolates out is that you will likely recreate like what is what your internal experience is, you will recreate that externally. So if you have a secure Mm -hmm. attachment, you're more likely to um, find partners who are securely attached or who, yeah, are adoring of you versus like if you have a more kind of distant parent or like, yeah, attachment experience, you're more likely to gravitate towards that, towards people who are distant and hard to, or you become, or like you recreate that dynamic somehow. Mm. Um, And our attachment styles, there's an idea that they can be really fluid and like you can be um a certain there are kind of four I won't go into the specifics I can send you some cool information on it but there are like four general like attachment styles Mm -hmm. and there are thoughts that you can yeah kind of shift 
your attachment style depending on who your partner is and like what kind of energy they're bringing and I think even in one relationship depending on what kind of season of life or mood your partner is going through you can kind of shift and change within that so it's a pretty interesting and definitely in my own experience I had to like really learn like oh I'm gravitating towards partners who are like where I'm really small and they get to like you know have the leash on me and like that's not I don't want that and like where's my agency and where's my choice because it's kind of easy to be in that like victim place and it's all your fault and you're doing this to me and like you're a bad person for you know powering over me but that's a dynamic I, this is like obviously not as nuanced and not in a, a uh, mental health professional language, but I wonder if this is kind of like where some of the idea of like negging women comes from, like the idea of men who go around and say mean things to women, but somehow that's how they are able to like, quote unquote, secure women. Like, I just remember seeing it in college and being like, he's just being mean to her. Like, I don't understand what's happening. And so I feel like that just gave me a lot better perspective on why that would necessarily be happening. Because I remember seeing it from friends and people I cared about and being confused and concerned. Like, he's not being kind to you. Like, I can see that he's, like, mocking you and that you're still going to go home with him, which I don't understand. And not always knowing how to talk to the women in my life who I cared about, who I saw it happening to, you know? Yeah, and I work with, now I work with both, like, domestic violence or intimate partner violence. I work with both people who have been, like, arrested for perpetrating that um, Mm -hmm. and also work with, like, survivors and victims of that. And it's fascinating because just like how I recounted, like, I kind of froze Mm -hmm. when, when my experience was happening when I was a kid And that's a very human experience, which also has its own shame with it. Like, oh, I should have said no, or I should have fought back in a more like assertive way. Um, But when there's that lack of uh, feedback, when there's that lack of no, and yeah, like in your example, when, when someone, when a guy is mean to a girl who like kind of goes along with it and doesn't stop it. Um, it makes sense that both of them are doing that and like he's not really getting any feedback that it I mean what he's doing is working to some extent and like it's hard to change we as human beings it's hard to change behaviors that are working on some level yeah I just even remember having conversations with some of the guys I hung out with in college and then being like, yeah, like, girls like it when you, like, jokingly make fun of them. Yeah. And I was like, do they? Like, I, I'm not convinced that that's true. But then they'd be like, well, but it works. Like, I, I like, got to hang out with her. So what do you mean it doesn't work? And I was just like, I don't understand. I just, I think this is giving me a perspective that I understand a little bit better. And some more compassion for both parties, you know? I think in the end, like, my goal in life is to build more compassion because <laughs> I, I can be a little black and white, and I think my natural way of being is a little bit judgmental and a little bit like I like that I don't. So I think any time that I can build some understanding and compassion for people, it's helpful. Because I just remember looking at my girlfriends and being like, what are we doing? Like, what are you doing? Like, I, he's terrible. Like, can we stop hanging out with him? <laughs> like, I don't know why. He's, 
he just makes fun of me and he hurts my feelings. Like, I don't know why we're hanging out with this asshole. <laughs> it's so remember, true. Right? I even remember joking that I was complaining to Quasi about it one time and he was like, well, that's just because you're well adjusted. And I was like, oh, yes. I don't know what you mean. Uh-huh. And I just kind of like laughed and, and brushed him off and was like, whatever. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I do see what he's saying now. I think it's interesting. Absolutely. And I just really admire your, I mean, you are, show so much strength and like who you are and, um, and what you want to do and what's important to you. And, and there's so much strength in like knowing yourself in that way and knowing what you like and what you don't like. And yeah, and it can also be kind of a fine line between like that and being judgmental. So yeah, it's it's kind of an interesting it's definitely nuanced. Like it's so important to feel the yes and the no in your body. Like I've done some consent workshops and when I first did them, the, like the facilitator was like, think of something that you really like, like, and you're just a really clear yes on. It could be like a person or an activity or like a food. Um, Camping and, on the beach. Right. Yeah. Or, and then think of like a no and um and and then like feel it in your body and I remember the first time I did that I like couldn't I was like I don't feel mm-hmm. any like I don't wear and I and then it was such a big wake-up call of like oh I need to develop more of that sense of no because it's all related my yes and my no like it's all it's all there it's all interrelated yeah, that's really interesting. I just closed my eyes and took a very mini perception. <laughs> but I would encourage listeners to do because it's really interesting to think about. And I never have before. And I do. it's kind of like sometimes in yoga class, I'll ask people to think of someone that, that they just feel really positively about. And then I encourage them to try and like notice in their body where they feel that positivity. Like, do you notice a little upturning of your lips? Do you notice a softening in your shoulders? Like, what does it feel like? to feel that positive emotion. Um, and I never thought about thinking about what the opposite feels like too, right? Because that's just as important. Like that can mm-hmm. help me figure out too. I know so many times I frustrate myself and early when I was in yoga practice, I would be really annoyed when teachers are like, just follow your inner wisdom. And I was always like, what the fuck is my inner wisdom? Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't have it. Like if I knew what I, what my intuition was telling me, I wouldn't be here, but like, I'm confused. Um, and how many times I've been annoyed by that cue or frustrated because it's hard to tell. And I think, the only way that I've been able to figure it out deeper is, is by learning more about my body. And boundaries really. Yeah. Cause I mean, and again, like I think that is the a better way to explain what I was sort of trying to say earlier with the process of like victims and that kind of like reenactment and like mm-hmm. re-victimization process is when you lose that boundary within yourself and you lose that sense of no and your ability to act on your no then it's really hard to decipher safe and unsafe situations. And it's really hard to have safe boundaries with people and in relationships. And so it's, it creates a lot of vulnerability in your system. If you don't have that internal sense of boundaries, it creates a lot of, yeah, conflict and um, lack of ability to like, 
have that to build trust because you're you might be more prone to like sharing things about yourself and other people and boundaries in relationship and commitments and yeah it's it's a it's a healing process for sure well I remember even having the same kind of realization which I feel like may come up every episode sorry listeners but like Mm -hmm. having this recognize like I um I have this like idea that I don't know if it's true or not but that like we all have a different way of relating to our inner worlds and like some of us are really deep into our inner worlds and like almost get lost in there and and find it hard to get some breath out of it and I lived completely in my external world (laughs) like I had no relationship with my inner world and I think it was partially because um watching my mother kind of struggle with her inner world I was like those seem scary like I think I'm just gonna do better to, to just not interact with it and just bulldoze my way through life I'm also like a Taurus so the bull feels very significant in my life like I was very good at being efficient about getting done what needs to get done like I had no problem just ignoring my inner world and then I met my husband Quasi, who's like the wateriest most feeling based <laughs> human in the world and, and I was just like my I was blown away I was like I don't understand what is happening here And I remember I used to tell him I didn't have feelings. I was like, I'm just not a feelings person. Like, they're just not really for me. And I don't really do with them. And he was like, I know you have stress. Like, I can see it that you're stressed. I was like, I'm not stressed. And for years, we would argue about whether or not I was stressed because I just like couldn't see it. And then I remember one of my sometime in a yoga class, they told me to relax my stomach. And I was like, what is that? Like I walked around with my shoulders up to my ears and my belly clenched my whole life. And I think bellies are specifically about fat shaming. I think the reason my, my belly was, I mean, I was shocked Quasi to tell him that I contract my abdominals lightly my entire day. Like until I sit down at the end of the day to watch Netflix, my abdominals are tightened. If I'm walking, standing, anything I do. And I think it's fascinating to think like, I think men just walk around with their bellies loose. I was shocked to find that out. Yeah, it's so fat shaming. And it's also like, like there's that whole, you know, like man spreading phenomenon and like the taking up space. Like if you're, it's yeah, kind of trying to like be small. I mean, it's just such bullshit. It's right. Fuck that. Yeah. And having, having, partners having um male partners who are in touch with their feelings is like and this might surprise you knowing my partner but he (laughs) is like super it that is such a blessing for to have like deep yeah like he's got deep feelings you can see yeah like whole person (laughs) yeah i mean that is just such a blessing to have a partner who can be like you know, just curious about something that you don't even know is happening for yourself. Like, do you think that that might be related to your anxiety? Like, and and that is so helpful because we don't always know. And it's so nice to create that relationship where you can co-regulate each other and help each other out because we, we need each other to, to feel and, and, and to, you know, discern that with codependence is, so hard and and that like meshing and like staying staying 
like present and intimate with yourself while simultaneously allowing someone else to hold you like Mm. that was that is was probably my most healing like body mind spiritual experience was Mm. when I let my current partner and I don't think any of my other partners were really like capable of it or I wasn't really capable of like letting that happen but like really allowing yourself to cry and be held by another person is like I just experienced that this year <laughs> and it's amazing like oh my yeah. goodness I could feel my whole system like healing and rewiring from that and like if you haven't done that I highly recommend it <laughs> well and I yeah, I just I think it's so interesting because just in this COVID crisis or whatever, um, I I've been way more emotional than usual and like really feeling a lot of things. Where like yes, I'm more in touch with my emotions now, but I'm still like a pretty ground like happy go lucky or at least neutral emotion person. Like I don't feel a lot of major mood swings. Like I'll get in a funk for a day or two, but it's not like hour to hour. And during COVID, good God, like. The amount of emotions I can feel in 24 hours is, is really un, uncharted territory in my life. And I was apologizing to Quasi about it. I was like, I'm really sorry, blah, blah, blah. And he looked at me and he was like, honestly, like, sometimes it feels like you walk around like you're this superwoman all the time and I'm never as good as you and I can never keep mm-hmm. up with you. And he was like, it feels nice for you to need me and for mm-hmm. you to want me to support you. He was like, it's just, it feels nice for you to say, like, I need a hug or I need you to help me. It's like, I just think sometimes I get into this, like, I don't mean to. And it's not like we're not vulnerable with each other, but I I thought it was a really thoughtful thing for me to think a little bit more about, like, how can I let him support me a bit more? And it means letting go of control a little bit, which I love to control. (laughs) Oh, I love control. I love control. And that, I mean full circle like because trauma and that and the experience of that it makes vulnerability not okay which is really unfortunate because vulnerability is the glue in relationships and relationships are the glue and connect us to our joy and our vibrancy in life and so yeah be that strength and vulnerability and that courage to especially after being hurt when vulnerable and when open um, to experiment with being open like that again and being vulnerable like that again and letting someone hold you and care for you within that vulnerability is like that's that's the that's the pudding <laughs> that is the pudding it's a pudding. <laughs> oh. well yeah crying is just crying is hard for a lot of different reasons because yeah. I often find I often cry a lot during conflict which is then hard because I'm used to being held when I cry <laughs> like I you know I definitely had the mom who like drop everything if you cry you get a full hug you know even if we were in a fight she would like stop and comfort me and that is just kind of a challenging dynamic sometimes in a relationship where it's like oh, but I'm mad at you. Like, I'm very frustrated with you. And like, and I jumped to crying probably a little quicker than I need to because I'm a little scared of anger. Like I'm still working through my fears around anger and frustration in 
annoyance because I think because my emotions don't swing as quickly, I think if you're mad at me, you're going to be mad forever. And I go to this like mm-hmm. fatal stick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You'll never get over it. And our relationship right. will never be the same. And it's my fault. And I like really go to some dark places when someone's upset with me. Yeah. Same. It's really uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. It's like, why does my brain go to this evil place where I think I like am not worthy of being in the relationship anymore? I think all these horrible thoughts that like, oh, they're very uncomfortable. And I know that it's not the truth, but it can be really hard sometimes in those and, moments. And I so appreciate how you um, like I you and Quasi, when I see both of you and when I hear you like just relate to your relationship. And what it's you're so real and authentic. It's like you don't. It doesn't seem like you try to hide the very like day to day normal and natural conflicts that I think a lot of us have in relationships. Like most of us have in relationships because relationships have conflict, and like either you can deal with it or you can like push it under the rug and like let that rug get really uncomfortable um but I really and I just really appreciate that with friends and couples that have that sense of like confidence and security to be like yep we like disagreed on this thing and now we're here (laughs) like (laughs) no it actually means a lot that you say that because I think I think in the first so we've been together since we were 23 so that's nine years So it's a really long time and we've known each other for 11 years and I think in the I don't know I would say only in the last probably three years ish have I gotten more real with people about the struggles in our relationship I think for a really long time I cared so much what people thought that I would never tell them anything Quasi ever did wrong because I never wanted anyone to think he wasn't perfect. And I was so scared of judgment of our relationship that I kept a lot of things to myself. Um, and frankly, a lot of hurt to myself. Not that there's anything particularly hurtful about our relationship, but like sometimes relationships are hard. <laughs> you know, it's not all fun and games and easy. And I think um, I actually had a really close girlfriend Um, There's like a group of us and she had a really gnarly breakup, you know, like one of the ones where it's like, oh, some lies come out. It's just some truth came out that was really hard. It was a really, really hard breakup. And afterwards, she told us about all this stuff that had been going on in her relationship Mm -hmm. for years that we never knew, you know, and all the pain and hurt that I mean, I still get choked up thinking about that she carried that because she didn't feel like we were a safe place to share it. Um, and we kind of, as like a group of friends were like, this is not right. And like, we need to change it. (laughs) Like we can't continue to have this like surface level relationship where we act like all of our marriages are perfect because they're not (laughs) like, and we need to start supporting each other. So that, that means a lot. Thank you. Cause I I really have tried to find a way to do it. That's respectful of Quasi's boundaries. Cause he's a little bit more private than I am in some ways. So I try to ride that line. Like I never want to share more than what he's comfortable like I would put my whole relationship out on Instagram like I I don't care I would tell anyone anything um but I also need to have respect for his boundaries and what he's comfortable sharing but I really appreciate it thank you yeah absolutely and it and it's it's cool how like when I mean when you reflect that and you like model that 
I think it makes it a lot easier to like in turn share that. Like I know we were on a trip last <laughs> summer and yes, it, we're like, doing it again, I hope. If we, we definitely it, are. I definitely want to. Yeah. It was incredible. Yeah, it was amazing. And again, with like the multiplicity and like not being black and white about it, like it was amazing. And like my <laughs> partner and I were like kind of struggling. Like we were just in like a weird, like funky spot and and it was really hard like that Mm -hmm. was a pretty like there were definitely just some some like weird kind of energy going on there and I remember like towards the end I was just hanging out with you and our other and other friend Darren and I just like cried and I just needed to cry about it because it was hurt and like and I didn't want to like demonize him and um, and like it just it was what it was, but it hurt. And like being able to just and I didn't even I didn't really know. I mean, I yeah, like I didn't really know you guys that well. That was like our like the longest time that I had hung out with you. Yeah. And it was so cool and it felt so safe to like cry and be able to share that and then be able to move on and right. be able to be like and it seemed like you had the understanding that because I feel like some people are more judgmental and are like oh wow like they're they don't seem like they're like in a good you know we would just be like more judgmental about it and um and it's hurtful when that is the I mean it's it's hurtful when that is like kind of projected on to a relationship when in reality like some things are just challenging sometimes yeah, I mean, relationships aren't easy, you know? Like, it's not yeah. easy to learn and grow together and and to make... I mean, Quasi and I have both pretty clearly said, like, in some ways, being in a relationship is about, like, constant compromise. <laughs> like, rarely <laughs> in my life do I get a thousand percent what I want. Like, if I really look at my daily life, like, often I don't. And that that's what I choose to do because I want to live life with him. Because I think that the, like, things I get out of my relationship and the ways I've grown as a human being wouldn't be possible without my partnership, and it's worth it. But, like, he and I both will jokingly sometimes be like, I'm getting a little tired of compromising. Like, you know, it gets hard sometimes. And I think that's just part of it, you know? Especially, I do think that, like, the more different you and your partner are, the more compromises you'll have to make. And, like, my partner and I are very different <laughs> in, a, in beautiful ways. But, like, I chose to be with somebody who challenges me in a lot of ways. But I think that's why I've grown. But, like, for example, I care so much what people think about me. Like, on the Enneagram personality test, I'm a three, which is the achiever. So, I, like, my ultimate. I remember I read it. It was, like, main goal in life to impress others. And I was, like, oh, dagger in the heart. What's like, your wing? What's your wing? two because I'm a teacher I'm two wing I'm a helping wing I'm a four I'm a four and a three wing fours are the worst maybe everyone (laughs) thinks their number is the worst but fours are like the worst the Enneagram does not like sugarcoat it they are pretty direct about the like shadow signs of you and you're like oh god what's Quasi you know we have a little bit he hasn't actually taken the full test I have like an Enneagram for dummies book it's like a sketchbook that I've read to him before I think based upon Dr. Asari's analysis that I think he's an eight with a seven wing he has the like the argumentative and like it 
he has he's constantly telling me don't tell me what to do it's like one of his favorite taglines if you like because i can be really bossy and i'm like don't tell me what to do and under the eight it was like key phrases don't tell me what to do i was like oh god right there yeah i tricked mike into like this 20 minute (laughs) questionnaire i was like when we first started dating so he was a little bit more um agreeable (laughs) and i was like oh my gosh i like have this like funny little like personality test you want to take it it won't take very long and he was like okay and like 15 minutes later he was like yes no no yes He was oh, like, God. what the fuck is this? Right? I read Quasi the book while he was in the shower. Poor guy. <laughs> like, I read the like for this chapters that I thought he was in the shower. <laughs> we assessed it. What was mine? A nine. Oh, okay. Peacemaker. Yeah, which I was like, what? You where <laughs> make some peace with me. <laughs> Does he have an eight wing or a one wing? I don't remember what his wing was. Um, but it was it was so helpful. I mean, I love those lenses on just like, oh, this person or like and other people, especially helpful for a four, like think differently than I do. <laughs> like I am not the center of the universe. And it's helpful to understand like, oh, there are a lot of really fundamentally different ways to view any singular situation. And just like you were mentioning with differences, like it's so interesting because I think some people are less inclined to be with people or less like they gravitate less towards people who are different and who really challenge yeah. them. And there's nothing wrong with that. And and I know that for me, like I'm very like self-growth oriented and like like a challenge and like being it like there being like movement and um and sometimes yeah like Mike and I are very different but I think it's I'm really glad that I'm really glad that we're different and I mean sometimes it's really challenging and sometimes I I can like get I can align with messages that I've heard about relationships like oh they should just they should be easy and like it shouldn't be this hard and it's like okay I hear you and I definitely think that a certain level of like flow in relationship and like obviously that's wonderful and it shouldn't always feel like really really painful and challenging and um but yeah it's it's an interesting there's no one size fits all and there's no perfect anything like that's a projection and when we have those like expectations on ourselves and on relationships it's just a recipe to feel like you're not you're not doing well enough or you're not like Mm -hmm. absolutely well how often do we compare ourselves you know I think I feel like everybody picks somebody else that they decide is the better version of themselves and then compares themselves to them constantly you know, like we, we all have that inclination to look at another couple and be like, well, they're perfect. They seem like they never fight and they're like little angels. And like I bet how- they have, I bet they have great sex that both of them enjoy every day. Oh, yeah. Every day, as many times as they want. No, I mean, it's just, I think we build up these things that are just so unrealistic. So I definitely try to like speak candidly about what my experience is because at the end of the day, like I guarantee you, I would not be. I wouldn't feel as free. I wouldn't love myself as much. And I wouldn't feel as brave to be my authentic self if I wasn't in a relationship with Quasi. 
because he does not care at all what people think, which is something I love about him. I mean, he does not give a fuck. He will say anything in front of anybody. It's why old people love him because like all of our friends' parents, he just like acts like he normally would in front of their parents. He's like cursing. He mooned my mom. I was like, do we, I was so mad. I asked him not to and he did it anyway. And then my mom thought it was hilarious. Like, I just, I need that spirit in my life to help me to step away from the, my own judgmental brain and to stop trying to impress everyone all the time. Absolutely. I mean, Mike gave himself a haircut with his like beard (laughs) trimmer the other day. I was like, what? And he he gave zero fucks that it looked like a small animal had eaten part of his hair. Like it was but and yeah, that that attitude of just like yeah, not because it's so easy to get so caught up in in the comparisons. And that's one of the things that I'm just really valuing from this time of COVID is like the lack of FOMO and the lack of oh yeah. I like should be doing this thing and if only I was like more organized and more motivated and better prepared then I would be like doing this super super fun thing that everyone else is doing and I'm excluded from like no that doesn't that's not true oh Elle this has been amazing (laughs) this has been great well I feel like I've gotten to know you on a deeper level which is really wonderful and fun Right, I feel like it'll be great to see you next time and kind of get to know you on a different level. But then also, I really think that we've shared things that will be healing for people. So thank you for being willing to do that because it's not easy. Yeah, of course. Thank you for including me and being you and being able to hold this space. And I'm so excited to to like hear people's reactions. And yeah, it's super cool. you and your body on spotify apple podcasts and google podcasts for more info check out my facebook page my instagram you and your bod pod and my website www.youandyourbodpod.com our artwork was provided by the incredible amber catford seriously check out her instagram and our music by a dear friend cinnamon sugar it's truly been an honor See you next week. You're the lucky ones. Cause most of us are heaving through.